Welcome to the Mayo Clinic Cardiovascular Continuing Medical Education Podcast. Join us each week to discuss the most pressing topics in cardiology and gain valuable insights that can be directly applied to your practice. Hello, my name is Paul Friedman. I'm chair of the Department of Cardiovascular Medicine at Mayo Clinic, and I'm absolutely delighted to be joined by my colleague, Dr. Soren Pislaru, the division chair for our Structural Heart Disease Division. Soren, thank you for joining me. Thank you so much, Paul, for the invitation. It's always a pleasure to, to participate, you know, lots of things that we can discuss about. There are so many. And why don't we start with tricuspid regurgitation? The tricuspid valve feels like it's the new frontier in cardiovascular medicine and structural heart disease. Give us a brief overview. How, why do people get tricuspid regurgitation and how do they present? Well, you know, this is the long forgotten valve, the, the last frontier, as you said. And the um, thing that is different about tricuspid regurgitation is that in the vast majority of the valve, this is a disease of the chambers rather than a disease of the valve. So 90 plus percent of the patients will have what we call secondary tricuspid valve regurgitation rather than primary uh, disease. It occurs mostly because of enlargement of the right ventricle, right atrium, tricuspid annulus, or a combination thereof of various causes. So everything that leads to that will, will uh, give you tricuspid regurgitation. Now, for the longest time, people thought about tricuspid regurgitation as being only congestion. So the, the hallmark is peripheral edema, you know, abdominal congestion, ascites, fatigue as a primary symptom of right-sided heart failure. But more recently, we understand that actually patient can be very dyspneic. So whenever you have unexplained dyspnea and peripheral edema, I should think maybe there is uh, tricuspid valve regurgitation. Most common causes of tricuspid regurgitation in your practice today? So vast, vast majority, it's just related to left-sided heart disease, whether that be valvular, ischemic, uh, diastolic dysfunction, anything that leads to any form of pulmonary hypertension will eventually lead to enlargement of the, of the right ventricle, right atrium, and uh, thereby give you tricuspid regurgitation. So left-sided heart disease, 70%. I'm glad you didn't blame the electrophysiologist because certainly device leads have been associated with TR. Now, we've ignored it for years. Why do we need to really up our game with regards for the care of tricuspid regurgitation in patients with the condition? Mainly because it's very prevalent. So we estimated that that there are millions of people who have tricuspid regurgitation that is clinically significant in the United States. And for the longest time, people have noted that when you have more tricuspid regurgitation, you have more mortality. So there's clear relationship between the two. But for the longest time, people used to say that people die with tricuspid regurgitation rather than off tricuspid regurgitation. In other words, the comorbidities that cause tricuspid regurgitation will eventually kill you. So, so therefore, TR was kind of sort of innocent bystander. But we understand now this is not entirely true. Um, the problem with that concept, you know, ignore TR because it's always the other disease that gets you, is that people tend to not refer patients for specialized care. And that means that by the time we, we get to visit with the tricuspid regurgitant patient, um, many times uh, they are already very frail, advanced disease and have high risk for intervention. You know, I, in anecdotally, in my own practice, the patients who have been referred for percutaneous interventions have had dramatic, dramatic lifestyle improvements. But how do we, you know, medical care is complex. 
people don't often think of tricuspid regurgitation as something that requires treatment. Uh, in the past, it was only surgical treatment. So how do we start, first of all, to identify those patients who maybe should be referred for treatment and changing the current pattern? I think the, the first step is providing the tools that allow the primary care practitioner to, to say this is a patient who has significant risk and this is perhaps a patient that has less of a risk from tricuspid valve regurgitation. And you know, when, when you uh, first visit with a patient, it is an overwhelming experience because uh, people have all sorts of things. They can be old, they can be young, they can be in atrial fibrillation or not, they can have uh, renal disease and you know, ischemic heart disease and any combination of that. So, so it's very hard to pinpoint who exactly is the patient and where do you put them on a risk table. And what we try to do over the last uh, few years is just leverage the, the large amount of data that the Mayo Clinic has at um, uh, in the electronic records. <clears throat> we look at about 13,000 patients from Mayo Clinic Rochester and try to, to make it very, very simple. We created a, a risk score tool um, that relies solely on very, very simple clinical parameters. Eight clinical parameters. You put them in a calculator and they will spell out a risk for your individual patient, mortality risk at one year and five years. And I think if you have that tool at your disposition, um, that is um, something that, that will enable the, the primary caregiver to, to realize this is something that's important for my patient. Perhaps they should be referred early to, to surgery. Now, this score is using pretty readily available clinical characteristics, creatinine, heart rate. Yeah, so, so we, we said, okay, what is the, the risk at the first time you're, you're found to have tricuspid valve regurgitation going forward? So first echocardiogram in everybody uh, who was diagnosed with moderate or more TR. And then, then if you add the combination of these eight factors that are all associated with mortality and you plot the score, you can get scores from zero to 12 in theory. Uh, and that stratifies extremely well the, the mortality going forward. Uh, not only that, but what we have seen using this score is, is quite interesting. So people who have very, very high scores, uh, whether you have moderate or moderate severe or severe tricuspid regurgitation does not seem to impact a lot on your mortality, meaning that you're already so sick that presence of TR will not impact you that much. So these are the patients we think are dying with TR rather than dying of TR. And correcting TR in these patients probably is not going to improve mortality, although it may improve their symptoms quite a bit. At the other end of the spectrum, the patients who actually have lower risk uh, on the TRIO score, the lower scores, uh, the impact of progressively increasing TR is substantial. So I think these are the patients that uh, we should really consider for early intervention in case the, that medical therapy fails to control their, their tricuspid valve regurgitation. So, so it gives you the perspective where you should focus on early surgical or percutaneous uh, um, intervention versus people who uh, may derive only a symptomatic benefit. And we will put this uh, as soon as we can get our calculator uh, going, we will post it on, on the Mayo website. So it's going to be available for everybody to use. Now, we've talked a lot about the TRIO score. 
Absolutely, it's actually very easy. So you need age, um, the gender of your patient, the presence of severe tricuspid regurgitation as a yes or no, the creatinine level, the history of congestive heart failure, history of chronic lung disease, um, the level of um, AST, aspartate aminotransferase, and the heart rate. And that's all there is to it. And some of the factors receive one point and some of the factors receive two points, but you don't need to remember that because it's an online calculator. You just put the numbers in and the calculator will spell it out for you. For instance, uh, a patient who has somewhere intermediate risk score, five or six, mortality at one year is actually quite high. It's about 39%. And mortality at five years is 93%. We, we have to think as this being a significant disease in patients with significant comorbidities. Now, just to elaborate that point further, yeah, as you noted, tricuspid regurgitation is very common, and yet the vast majority of patients have it secondary to other conditions. Can the TRIO score be effectively applied across all patients, or is that simply too simplistic? Well, I, I would put the TRIO score in the same category as a CHADS or CHADS VAS score. So, so it, it's good. It's not perfect. You know, so it's going to give you a sense of the risk of the individual patient, and you can make decisions on that. But we understood early on that this is oversimplification. You cannot capture everything. We made it simple so it can be used in a simple fashion. If you make it too complex, nobody will, will use it. You know, it's going to take one hour to calculate the score. You better not do it. But what we decided to do going forward is just to try to, to understand the patterns uh, that patients fall into, um, meaning that, you know, you have a patient, do they have um, uh, coronary disease and atrial fibrillation and renal disease and lung disease all at the same time, or do they tend to associate in different ways? And that helps you understand that, that maybe patient cluster around certain phenotypes. And Vidwanan, who's one of our youngest, most recent hires and a very talented researcher, took upon herself to work with, with colleagues in, in statistics. And she came up with this clustering analysis for all these um, patients who have tricuspid regurgitation. And if you look at how the computer selects patterns of association, we were surprised to see that you end up having five major clusters, you know? So it's a run-of-the-mill, lower-risk and higher-risk tricuspid regurgitation. These are most of the patients. So about 80% of the patients fall into that category. But then you have three very, very distinct populations. Patients who have lung disease, patients who have ischemic heart disease, and patients who have renal disease. So these are very, very isolated clusters, and they are actually associated with fairly high mortality uh, when they have tricuspid valve regurgitation. And then we try to combine the two, you know, the TRIO score and uh, the clustering analysis, and they, they are complementary, so there's additional information between the two. So I think we have a better way of understanding where one individual patient will fall into in the day they first come to your office and they have a first diagnosis of TR, which is key to, to um, understand the disease better. No, that's a, it really is fascinating. It's a clinical, a classic type clinical score. And then cluster analysis really refines the phenotyping. So we can identify who has this because their lungs are bad and who has this, and we may be able to help them with a procedure. Which brings me to my, really the last question, and that is, there are substantial improvements in the treatment options. It used to be if you want to fix a tricuspid valve, you need an open chest surgery. Surgery itself has improved. Tell us a little bit about what the treatment options are and how you decide when to proceed to them. I think, first of all, because this is all functional, if you can 
treat medically the uh, underlying disease, meaning that you can correct the pulmonary hypertension, you can correct the left-sided heart disease or whatever you do um, in a non-interventional way that reduces the volume of the right chambers and reduces the TR, that should be your first line of treatment. This is functional disease. Valve has nothing to, you know, it's an innocent victim. So treat that. But those people who do not benefit from medical treatment, they should go for an intervention. And I think that the way uh, this is pictured in my mind as of today, uh, the really low risk patients should still go to surgery. Surgery is outstanding in terms of correcting TR. They do not replace the TR in majority of the patients if they are referred early enough. So they can benefit from just valve repair rather than valve replacement. So that's very important if you refer early, high chance of, of uh, repair. Now, for the surgery, before you go to the next step, for the surgical approach, median sternotomy, or are we talking thoracotomy, or how are these done? I think a lot, a lot of people have started moving away from median uh, sternotomy for isolated TR. So you can do just a thoracotomy approach. And for the surgeon, when, when you talk with the cardiac surgeon, they say, technically, this is a very simple operation for them. And it is just because we refer patients so very late in their disease that mortality has been traditionally been high, about 10% uh, perioperative risk. So, so that's not the, the fault of the surgeon. That's the fault of the medical community not referring the patient early enough. So thoracotomy and uh, then, of course, robotic repair and, and all these things that, uh, that are coming uh, on for, for the surgeons. And obviously, we have the percutaneous techniques. I think, I think there's nothing that's approved in the United States at this time. Everything is uh, either off-label use of the MitroClip device when in patients who have both mitral and tricuspid regurgitation or, or you know, um, uh, clinical trials with various devices, various uh, approaches for uh, uh, correcting TR, uh, either by uh, tricuspid edge-to-edge repair or by annular intervention or by tricuspid valve replacement. And not to, to ignore the electrophysiologist, I think I think you have a personal interest in that because, because we, we talked about this before. In somebody who has atrial fibrillation that leads to severe tricuspid regurgitation, we have seen a number of patients where you correct the AFib, you keep them in sinus rhythm, and the TR goes away. So I think this is not to be neglected. This is something that we, we need to keep in mind. And uh, I think uh, keeping uh, maintaining sinus rhythm may be important in this population. It is really a, a sort of a catch-22 where the atrial fibrillation promotes TR, which promotes atrial fibrillation. And I think there's much to be learned in that space in terms of how effective catheter ablation will be for the TR and in which patients, but really an exciting and rapidly changing area. Dr. Soren Pizlaru, thank you for joining me. Thank you, Paul, for the invitation. Um, and then hopefully um, we'll have a uh... Uh, more questions coming from the audience uh, from, from this, and we're happy to, to assist them with any. Terrific. Thank you. Thank you for joining us today. Feel free to share your thoughts and suggestions about the podcast by emailing cvselfstudy at mayo.edu. Be sure to subscribe to the Mayo Clinic Cardiovascular CME podcast on your favorite platform and tune in each week to explore today's most pressing cardiology topics with your colleagues at Mayo Clinic. This has been a Mayo Clinic podcast.